Well, if you're new this morning, you wouldn't know that we're working our way through the book of Ephesians. We took last uh, Sunday away from Ephesians because of Easter, but I'm um, jumping back into it today. I'll catch you up real quickly on what we've been learning and where we're at. Um, the book of Ephesians written to the people living in the city of Ephesus, an ancient Greek culture, um, it, part of the Gentile world outside of um, the Holy Land, the area of Israel. And Paul had found this group of people who were um, a remnant, a, a small assembly of people, a church gathering. You might think of them like an island in, in the midst of a very pagan culture. We're, we're going to explore a little bit of that this morning. And in the midst of that, um, he, he wrote this letter, the book that you have in front of you, the book of Ephesians, um, to encourage them in their walk with Christ and their identity of who they were in Jesus. So if, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. And if you didn't bring one with you this morning, you'll find them in the pew racks there in front of you. You can follow along that way. But also a lot of the verses and the passages will be up on the screen. Um, as a matter of fact, if you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to take one of those with you when you leave today. We really want you to have a copy of God's Word in your hand so that you own your own, your own Bible. So free gift from New Hope. But here's a brief review from, for you. Uh, just uh, seven items. You see the first four on the screen. Our life, we learned in chapter 1. Our life in Christ is a witness to being chosen by God. And the Bible calls that predestination, a theological term. And number two, um, we, he determined to deliver us out of what Paul called the hot iron furnace. And we labeled that redemption. And number three, we discovered that we're in now, if we're a believer in Jesus, we are infused with his presence. And as a result of that, we're destined for eternity. So that's our inheritance. And number four, as a result of all those things we discovered a couple weeks ago, we are united in Christ. It doesn't matter where you go to church, if you're a believer in Jesus, we know that we have one faith, one hope, one baptism, one Lord, one communion of the saints. That's what Scripture is telling us. If we name the name of Christ and we believe that He is the result and the purpose for why we have a destiny with God, that's the one body, the one spirit, the one Lord, the one hope, the one faith. So as a result, we've discovered in number five, the, re, the result of all that is that the Father has a really high calling for us. He expects a level of maturity out of Christians that many American Christians, maybe even globally, many Christians around the world miss today and misunderstand. So that's why we saw in verse one of chapter four, it says, walk worthy of the high calling. Well, that's what we're going to be exploring today because number five, we we realize that God has a really high calling for us and He expects a level of maturity. And last time we were together, we found that God is our great encourager. It's not that He just sets a bar and expects us to fail and fall short. He sets a bar because He knows that we can strive toward that. Not that we'll reach perfection here on planet earth, but through Him, through His power, through the working of His Holy Spirit, we can discover what it is to move towards that level of maturity. So, number seven, he set really high standards for us because of this. He knows that he's holy and he expects us to walk in his holiness. He's holy. We accept that. You just sang that in the Revelation song. He's holy, holy, holy. And letter B, he knows that through him, you can accomplish more than you think you can. He believes in you even when you don't believe in yourself. Do you have the capacity? God believes in you. So this morning, what I want to do is remind you of who you are in Christ. Because what we know according to God's Word is that when God saved us through Jesus and transformed us, something entirely new happened to us. 
So a, a couple Greek words that I'd like to share with you here on the front end and, and just indulge me here because I didn't use Greek in the last couple weeks, okay? So I'm kind of going through withdrawals, so, okay? And indulge me for just a moment. I want to share with you a couple words that are not in your notes this morning, but I'd like you to see them on the screen because I want you to learn this phrase. And Paul used it very specifically when he wrote a Bible verse that perhaps you've heard all your life when you were raised in church, if you've been raised in church. And you've heard a particular verse, and this phrase I want you to see. Let's put it up on the screen, and it's the word kainos, katitsis. I I know it's a hard word or a phrase to stumble over, but this literally means a fresh, original formation. So kainos is the word new, and and it means fresh, something never seen before. And katitsis, difficult to say, uh, means the original formation. Now, here's where your mind should go when you see this phrase. Think the Garden of Eden before the fall of man. God's original creation, uncorrupted by sin. And we have this phrase, kainos, katissis. And Paul uses it when he writes to the people at the church in Corinth. Let me show you how it's used because we're told that we're a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Look with me on the screen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a kainos katsis, a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Do you see yourself that way this morning? Because that's how God sees you. The old has been put away. The new has come. So that, that phrase is very important for you to get down in your mind as we move forward this morning. As a matter of fact, I want to show you um, a paraphrased edition of the Bible. It's called The Message. And it, it's not one that I typically go to, but I want you to see the way the author took 2 Corinthians 5.17 and translated it in The Message. You'll see that on the screen. He wrote it this way. Anyone united with the Messiah gets a fresh start, is created new. The old life is gone, a new life burgeons. So maybe that's evident in you this morning. Maybe you're one who could say, today I am not what I once was. I've put the old aside, I've found new life in Christ. Maybe maybe you'll evaluate yourself this morning because there's an opportunity for self-evaluation coming up. A couple weeks ago, you got to evaluate how your pastor's doing, whether or not I'm teaching you and equipping you the way that I'm supposed to be doing, according to what we saw in Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. Well, this morning, guess what? You get to examine yourself and see how you're doing in your walk. So according to what we've learned so far, everything has changed, and that change requires a new thinking and a new behavior. So look with me at Ephesians 4, verse 17, and let's see what God has to say to us. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. Now when he's using the phrase, so this I say, he's looking back on all the things that you know to be true at this point. That you are predestined in Christ and that you're chosen and that you're redeemed and that you have an inheritance and that you're united in one body and that God has given spiritual gifts for your edification. So he's looking back on all the things that you know to be true, and he says, so this I say as a result of all that, I'm going to affirm something. And when he uses the word affirm, he's using a legal term. And it's this particular word you'll see on the screen, and martiromahi, and this, this particular phrase means to be sworn as, as a witness. 
Uh, we see people go into a courtroom, perhaps on television. You've seen it throughout the course of your life where a Bible is held out in front of them and they're told to put their hand on the Bible and raise their right hand and say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. It's this, to be adduced as a witness. What Paul is saying, because I know all these things to be true, I'm affirming it together with the Lord, I am a witness that you've been chosen, you've been redeemed, you've got a destiny, and I'm here as a witness on the basis of who you are in Christ and all that God purposes for you you are to be absolutely distinct, a separate people, even when society doesn't agree with you, even when society says your biblical values are messed up. But God's Word stands true. And God's Word says this is what we know to be true, and yet society ultimately becomes antagonistic against the Word of God. So, how distinct are we to be? Are we, are we talking like Amish distinct? Well, let's explore that a little bit so you can see how distinct God is calling us to be. He says in verse 17, walk no longer just as the Gentiles. So how do you tell someone not to do what they naturally do? Because he's writing to the church in Ephesus. They're Gentiles. It's all they know. How do you tell someone not to do what they naturally do? Not to be what they naturally are. See, right away in the very first phrase here, you're seeing that faith in Christ demands a really radical change. You can't be what you once were. So you've got to change. So he uses this phrase, no longer, because they used to be that way. No longer walk that way because you used to walk like the pagans. Now, indulge me here as we use another Greek word. It's the word ethnos, okay? And and I want you to see this one very specifically because when Paul uses the phrase Gentiles, if you've grown up in church and you've heard the word used Gentile, you probably have an image that pops in your mind from the Old Testament because the Jews thought of everyone who was a Gentile as being non-Jewish, okay? So Paul has taken a, a word that the Jews used And he's transferred it over to the New Testament. And he's using it of people who stand apart from God. So in this particular case, the word ethnos is is speaking of specifically a race, especially the the way the Jews used it, a foreign race, a non-Jewish one. But the implication in the way that it's being used here in this passage is he's speaking of a pagan people. People who are distant from God. Who are heathen in their behavior. So in this case, Gentiles represent everyone who's ungodly, who's unregenerate, what Scripture calls a pagan. You know anybody like that this morning? Got anybody in your world whom you would consider to fall into that category? You need to pay special attention to what's coming up because perhaps you'll be able to identify with what I'm about to describe about the setting in Ephesus. Because where the Ephesian church was located, you would point to that community and say, pagan, 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 because they're all over the place. And this church in Ephesus was an island in the midst of a very corrupt and dark society. The, The temple that was built to Diana that was located in Ephesus, one of the seven ancient wonders of the, of the world, was built as a place of worship, to worship an idol, Diana. 
also known as Artemis, the, the Temple of Artemis. Now, this particular place was gorgeous, and it was built with modern, modern architecture. As a matter of fact, the city of Ephesus was incredibly prosperous. Think New York City. It was a place of commerce, trade, much capital, financial capital. Also a place of art and society. People wanted to live there. And so naturally, the temple to Diana that was erected there was put up because so many people lived there. A major metropolitan area. However, along with that came a a very dark influence. Idol worship for one, for sure. But the Roman Empire allowed a one-quarter mile perimeter around the temple of Diana as a place of refuge, a safe haven, if you will, for people who were criminals. So if someone committed as egregious of a crime as rape or as minor of an infraction as stealing fruit from the market and they were a wanted convict, they could run for asylum to the temple of Diana and hide out in the midst of the temple and avoid any type of prosecution. So you take this place that harbors hardened criminals and then add to it thousands upon thousands of legal prostitutes and then sorcerers and idol worship and women who exchange the use of their bodies for things other than what God intended, and men who took on the role of females, and you got a very perverse environment. So in the midst of this very, very dark area, our mind goes, wow, like Las Vegas dark? Like San Francisco? Like New Orleans at Mardi Gras? Worse than that. As a matter of fact, let me show you what a Greek philosopher by the name of Heraclitus wrote. He lived in the 5th century. He wrote about the 1st century Greeks who were living around this area of the Temple of Diana. Look at his quote up on the screen. And speaking of Ephesus, the darkness of vileness. The morals were lower than animals, and the inhabitants of Ephesus were fit only to be drowned. Why don't you tell us how you really feel, Heraclitus? I mean, it's got a pretty strong impression. So in, in the midst of this massive cesspool of wickedness, God raises up a church. And you have the book that was written to them, Ephesians, in front of you. These, these people who are a small island, who are despised by the culture because they can't stand them for taking on godly convictions. Now, mind you, most of the people in the church had previously been part of that pagan society. And they were introduced to Christ and they rejected the old lifestyle. So here's what I picture. Day in and day out, they walk the streets of Ephesus, going by the same places that they used to party at, seeing the same people that they used to drink with and party with to the wee hours of the morning, seeing the same prostitutes they used to visit. And People calling them, asking them to come back into that lifestyle. So they're facing continual temptation to revert to the old ways. Now, this is not unique to Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. Peter faced the same thing. As a matter of fact, when Peter wrote 1 Peter, he was writing to a group of Christians who had just come out of that lifestyle. Let me show you his quote up on the screen. It comes from 1 Peter 4.3. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles 
Having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And in all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. Can you identify with that? Have you ever been maligned for the name of Jesus because you've taken a stand? I don't know what that looks like in your world. I know students face it a lot in school. People who take a stand in the hallway and say, I'm not participating in that, and immediately they're made mockery. You've been maligned. You can identify with what Peter wrote here because he knew what it was to be maligned for the name of Christ. So Paul's going to call out some specific four characteristics by which you can identify the pagan mindset. Maybe it will help you to identify how distant you are supposed to be from this type of society because I want you to see these four characteristics. I don't know if they're in your notes. I can't remember if I put them in there, but they will be up on the screen. These, these four characteristics of really ungodly pagan lifestyle. The first one um, is intellectual futility. They're futile in the mind. We'll look at that in just a minute. Number two, they're ignorant of God's truth. Number three, spiritually and morally calloused. And number four, depraved in the mind. Now, it's really significant that this basic issue of lifestyle choices, and everything that Paul is writing about this morning is about lifestyle choices. This basic issue, all of it, do you notice every one of them center right in the mind? And mind is the originator of sin. And so because sin flows from the mind, transformation must begin with the mind. That's why Romans 12 was written. Romans 12.2 says this, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So, Christianity, I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but if you're a Christian this morning, you're an intellectual. Christianity, at its very core, is intellectual before it's experiential. Because the first step in repentance is a change of mind. Recognizing who you are before a holy God. So you took an intellectual step before you had the experience in Christianity. Who you are in relation to who God is is a mental exercise. So number one, we're told a pagan is futile in their mind. The number one is futility of the mind. And so Paul uses this phrase, mateotes. I want you to see the definition for futility up on the screen because in the Greek language, it it means profitless. It's vain. It, It will yield nothing. So what he's saying, in their mind, where their mind goes, the things that they chase after, it's void of any substance. So the life of a pagan is consumed in the pursuit of goals, which really at their core are just an accumulation of temporary things. And and they're looking to fill a void, so they're looking for satisfaction, but can't find it anyplace. So that's number one. Number two, they're ignorant of God's truth. It means they're spiritually uninformed. Verse 18 speaks to that, so look with me at verse 18. It says, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. Now for most people, especially in our region, because we're surrounded with Michigan State University, to be called ignorant would be quite an insult. Would you not agree? You you wouldn't want to be called that. It would be a great offense. So Paul's point here in saying that they're ignorant is that they're ignorant of the things of God. And he's combining ignorance and sin, saying they're inseparable. If you're ignorant of the things of God, you're involved in sin. That's the definition for the person. So here's the truth. You know someone who's fallen? Someone who is not a believer in Jesus Christ? In living a pagan lifestyle? They have an incapacity to comprehend the things of God. 
It's part of the penalty of sin. They can't see things clearly. You don't believe me? Just try explaining the Bible to a non-believer. You ever tried to do that? I've had that high honor (laughs) many times. I've had that conversation with individuals, and it's as though there's just a fog between me and them. An individual trying to look, and I can explain something, what I think is very clearly to them, and and it's as though there's scales over their eyes. So the cause of this, we're told according to this passage, is hardness of the heart, a willful determination to remain in sin. Because even God says men who are determined to reject Him ultimately are fools. I didn't say that. God said that Himself. Let me show you this from Romans 1. Romans 1.21, for even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. In verse 22, it says, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. See, the contradiction there is that they think they're wise, but Paul says they're ignorant. So God says they're fools. They have no comprehension. So number three, number two is ignorant of God's truth. Number three, they're spiritually and morally calloused. And so verse 18 and verse 19 tell us that this hardness of their heart leads to a callousness. They're unresponsive to the truth. You ever had a callous on your hands? Hardness of skin? Maybe you've been out raking in the yard or working in the garden or maybe taking on a construction project and you build up that tough, leathery surface, that hardness. There's a medical term that's used here in the Greek language that Paul's very specific about. He's saying a spiritually dead person, dead in their trespasses and sin, they're calloused. And they can't hear what you're saying. Just think of it this way. Think of going to a morgue or to a funeral home and trying to talk and have a conversation with a dead body. They can't hear you. They're dead. The Scripture says a person who's spiritually dead can't hear you no matter how clear you are and no matter how much evidence you give them because it requires the work of God the Holy Spirit to come and pull them into a place of being able to see. So Paul uses this word porosis. It's a medical term. And porosis in the Greek language had to do with a doctor in the first century who would have a patient come to him who had had a broken bone. And the broken bone had not been properly set, so it would heal. And a callousing would set in, a hardness, a calcification. The word is porosis. And it literally means rock hard, harder than the bone itself because sin has a petrifying effect to the heart. And and the person who continually chooses to sin becomes hardened and paralyzed to spiritual truth. And eventually to the point, they just can't even hear the things of God. So it's why it's so remarkable when someone later in life comes back to God or, or comes to Christ in the first place because they've had years and years and years for that calcification to build up over their heart. And they're very hard to the things of God. Now, think in terms of the Old Testament when you think of this, so you get this image in your mind. Think of Pharaoh dealing with Moses. Now, Moses is chosen by God to come before Pharaoh and pronounce the activity of God in front of him, which he does in great power. Moses sees God turn the water into blood on the Nile River to the point where all the wildlife in the river die. Then billions and billions of flies come up on the land, and then God causes frogs to come up on the land, and then locusts, 
and then the firstborn die, and then the animals buy, and then the livestock, as they're dying off, then all the grain in the field dies, and yet Pharaoh can't even see this. So when you go back and read the passage, you'll see that Pharaoh's consultants had to come to him and say, don't you know? This is the finger of God. It is the stroke of Jehovah. Because his heart was so hard. Scripture says God actually gave him over to the hardness of his heart. Well, that's Old Testament. What about New Testament? Well, think in terms of Jesus' teaching. First century Jews had heard Jesus teach. They had the high honor of having God's written word. They had the entire Old Testament in their hands. And yet, even though they've seen Jesus turn water into wine, they've seen Jesus walk on water, they've seen Jesus raise the dead and heal the blind and restore limbs to people who were born without them and tell the paralyzed to walk. And yet, how hard is their heart? If you remember this from John 12, your mind will go back there very quickly from when we studied the book of John, but look with me on the screen. John 12 says this, though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. For this cause, they could not believe. That's a scary place to get to. When someone becomes so calcified and so much reject God and the things of God because they would not believe, they could not believe. And that's the tragedy of unbelief. You lose the capacity to see the things of God. And here's the really hard part about that. You don't really even know that you're in that situation without God bringing the conviction and pointing it out to you. So here's a question for you. We're talking about individuals so far, but is it possible for an entire society to become that calloused? Is it possible for an entire nation to come to the point where they reject the things of God? Here's an indicator for us, and we can evaluate this ourselves. Just think of our nation. Sins that were once hidden and never spoken of, except in very, very dark places, that are now indulged in blatantly in an entire society thumbing their nose to the creator of the universe, saying, we don't really care about your biblical interpretation. We want to chase after what we want to chase after. And eventually, in a society gets to the point where not even a thin veneer of morality is maintained. Is it possible for an entire society to become hardened to the things of God? I think it is. John MacArthur really captured a quote that I want you to see on the screen in regards to this. It says this, When, when self-desire rules, indecency runs wild and proceeds to cauterize the conscience, the God-given warning light and pain center of the soul. So that takes us to number four. Number four comes out of verse 19. Verse 19 says this, And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. So number four is depraved in the mind. Because all these things that we've been learning about, they lead inescapably to the sensuality and every kind of impurity. Ultimately, the the idea here is of unbridled self-indulgence. And right here, what we're especially talking about is the area of sexual sins. 
That's why Paul is talking about this issue of impurity and sensuality. So when a person determines to think their own way and do their things their own way and pursue their own destiny, they cut themselves off from God. And that's the pagan that we're talking about. He ultimately becomes his own authority and his thinking becomes futile. So, transition for just a minute. As unbelievers, before you became a believer in Jesus, Scripture says that's how we once were. As unbelievers, we were the pawns of Satan until we came to the place where we understood God's calling on our life. Now, here's what's going on for the people in Ephesus. The Ephesians previously lived like pagans, but they live in a society now where their fellow Ephesians still do. And many times that results in persecution of the saints. Many times it leads to godly behavior becoming a threat to the people that they surround themselves with. And considerable peer pressure comes, this pressure to continue to live as they used to. Because I think you all agree with this statement, Christianity runs against the grain of culture. Would you agree with that? I mean, the biblical definition of Christianity really runs against the grain of culture. So, here's a not-so-new truth, but it should be really obvious to us. Peer pressure is to be expected. We shouldn't act like it's a new thing. Peer pressure, especially students, hear me this morning, what you face in the school systems, peer pressure is to be expected if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you take a stand for these things that we're talking about this morning. Peer pressure is to be expected and rejected because a maturing believer really understands we've been chosen for a greater purpose. We've been chosen for salvation and for the glory of God, the creator of the universe. You've been set apart and chosen So let's take it a step further. If we're chosen by God and we're reserved for His purposes, let's take it a step further and we're told that we're supposed to do everything according to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 really ratchets it up. Look with me on the screen. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Eating and drinking is pretty common, right? So he's associated common daily behavior. So could, could we insert in there whether then you play golf or shop or surf the internet or have conversations with your friends? Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Is it possible to play golf to the glory of God? Well, not on Sunday morning because you'd be skipping church, okay? unless you go to the Saturday night service. Then the pastor will cut you a pass. Okay, no, now just hear me on this. If it's possible to go to the golf course and play a game of golf not reflecting the glory of God, then it's possible to go to the golf course and play a game of golf reflecting the glory of God because you can be a light in the midst of a very dark and perverse generation, Scripture says. So what we're told here is whatever you do, Whatever business you happen to practice in, whether it's politics or medicine or you're working in the factory or you're pumping gas, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So you insert in there whatever action you're taking on, but this puts a whole new level of responsibility on our actions, right? Right? 
Yeah, yeah, I just want to make sure you're hearing me on this. Okay, so what we believe really affects the way that we behave is what we're learning here. Okay, so now Paul's really going to transfer this over to us, and he's going to bring it home and apply it to us because we've been talking about pagan lifestyle. Let's go to verse 20. Verse 20 says, You did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him, just as truth is in Jesus. Uh, learning Christ is not the normal way of referring to someone being converted to Christianity. Uh, I, a matter of fact, let me just ask a question. Anybody in here come to faith in Christ in the last five years? Okay, uh, question. When you came to faith in Christ, I know you don't want to be called out in public, but just indulge me. Um, when you came to faith in Christ, did anybody say to you, you learned Jesus? No, it's not common. It's not part of our vernacular. We would say, well, she's born again or she became a believer in Christ. We, we have other terms, but to say someone learned Jesus is actually a very biblical statement. This is what Paul wrote here because learning Christ is, an, is, is more than just experiencing Christ. You did not learn Christ is a direct reference to salvation, first of all. So think in terms of this. When Jesus in Matthew 11 was offering salvation to someone and he said to that person, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. See, that's, that's the modern or the, the first century mindset to learn of Jesus. So it was a learning, it, it was a learning Christ, not just an experience. So this kind of tells me, I, I wonder in my mind, how biblical our modern evangelism tactics are. Because in the first century, when Jesus evangelized, he taught. And it took a considerable period of time for the teaching to really affect the mind and for people to grasp it. So there's a reason why faith in Christ and learning are really closely related, and it's because of this truth. Jesus is more than just a teacher. Jesus is truth. So let me remind you of what John 14, 6 says, I am the way and the truth. So Jesus is the truth. So coming to Christ is a result of learning the truth. So because you've learned all these things, because you've learned of Christ, if you're a believer in Jesus this morning, the contrast that Paul set up here is that your minds are no longer darkened and your heart is no longer hard. You're no longer alienated from God. You're no longer calloused over. So the new walk in Christ is a complete opposite of the old walk. Whereas the old is ignorant of the truth of God, the new knows truth. So here's the chance for you to do a little self-examination. See where you're at on the plane. If you don't like it, take it up with God, okay? Because I'm going to use His Word. These are not just my words. I'm, I'm going to show you a couple passages that might be a, a little prickly for you. Let me put the first one up. It comes from James 4.4. And it says, Friendship with the world is hostility toward God. That's not saying you can't do business. You can't interact on social levels. It's speaking of taking on that pagan lifestyle. Meaning, if you're going to live like the world, you're hostile towards God. If you're taking on pagan behavior. So, here's where it's going to get prickly for you. I'm going to go so far to say that a person who makes a profession of Christ, but makes no effort whatsoever to break their sinful habits has a real reason to doubt the authenticity of their salvation. Ooh. 
A little prickly, isn't it? I'll say it again, just so you hear me, so you're really prickly on this one. A person who makes a profession of Jesus Christ, but makes no effort to break their sinful habits, have a real reason to doubt their salvation. Now it's about to get a little bit harsher than that, because God said something harder than what I just said. Look with me up on the screen at 1 John 2.4. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. See, if you don't like that one, take that up with him because that's what God has to say. Self-evaluation time. Where do you sit on the plane of this? Are Are you pushing aside those old ways I'm not talking about earning your salvation. You cannot earn your salvation. It's a gift of God. It's free. It's called grace. But I'm talking about maturing in your walk. So let's move on because that was stage one. Stage two is where Paul wraps it up. And he's going to talk about our former manner of life. Look with me at verse 22. In reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of the deceit. So he's looking back at something that's already been accomplished. You laid aside. Matter of fact, he uses past tense words. Do you notice that? Former manner and laying aside the old self because you've got resurrected life. You're resurrected in Christ, which was the death of the old self. So here's where you could insert kainos katissus. You've got the old self laid aside and the new creation. So something happens to followers of Jesus Christ at the moment of conversion. At that moment, when we lay aside the old self, the Christian hears the call of God on their life and responds to it saying, I no longer want to walk that way. I want to accept what you've offered. I'm laying aside the old self. The imagery in the Greek language is so clear because when it says laying aside the old self, it's literally talking about stripping your clothes off from your body. You ever had a hard day working in the yard or or perhaps out in the woods and you got sweaty and grimy and dirty and you couldn't wait for the end of the day when you could peel those clothes off from you, throw them in a pile and jump in the shower? That's the imagery being used here. You've surrendered. It's a once and forever action laying aside those dirty rags at salvation. And so Paul's argument here is you no longer belong to the old sin. You belong to the new creation in Christ. So take off those grave clothes. Stop walking in deadness. Walk in the newness of life. So you might ask this question this morning. How do you do this? Well, verse 23 as we end is the answer for that. How do we do this? Verse 23, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness and truth. I'm going to break that down in just a moment. But let's accept the fact that conversion, I'm talking about sanctification, becoming more Christ-like, this issue of maturing is a process, isn't it? You're not instantly changed. You'd like to be, but you're not instantly changed. Let's put it in our mind this way. Physically, you are what you eat, right? Physically, I am what I eat. If I have the wrong things the night before, I pay the price for it the next day. Physically, I am what I eat. So spiritually, you are what you think. Spiritually, you are what you think, so what you take in defines you. So if we're continuing with our old actions, it's tantamount to the person who prays and says, God, please help me lose 20 pounds in the next three weeks. 
but then orders a banana split later in the day, okay? They haven't really put away the old desires in the old life. Now, to put it away would be just when the desire for the banana split comes up saying, no, I'm not going there. I'm asking for God's help. But most people approach this issue by saying, well, it's God's responsibility. And since he didn't give me the willpower, I guess it's God's will that I have the banana split because I don't have the willpower. Well, that's not the approach. Christ did not save us that we may live any way that we choose whatsoever and do whatever we want. He saved us to live godly lives in a way that is radically different. And I'm not suggesting Amish different, but radically different so that you're a light in a dark and perverse generation. So go back mentally with me to verse 1 when we are in chapter 4 and it says, walk in a manner worthy of the high calling. That's the conduct. And this conduct that God requires should not come as a surprise to us. Because when we read Jesus' words, the gospel that Jesus preached, it requires people to turn away from their sin. It's clear it meant a new way of life. Just think of some of the stories. Jesus heals the young man who's born blind, and what's the first thing he says to him? Go and sin no more. He raises the paralytic, He says, go and sin no more. Meaning, take on a new life. Reject the old. That's the gospel that Jesus taught. So let me encourage you to do this. If you're a believer in Christ this morning and you have conversation in the next month with someone about your faith and why you believe what you believe, be honest with those people. Share it like it really is. Tell them what it means to become a believer in Jesus Christ. Because we live in a day and age of cheap grace. When there's a lot of people who say that they're believers, but there's no reflection of it in their life whatsoever. So the church has stopped preaching the truth that you're hearing this morning. That you've got to understand God expects a level of maturity in our walk that is reflective of the high calling that He's placed on our life. That our conduct would reflect the fact that you've been chosen. You've been redeemed. You've been predestined. So here's where we're going to end this morning. How do we see victory in our life? How do do we see victory in areas in which we continue to fall back into patterns of the old lifestyle? Because we've already said, it's it's not like it's a light bulb change. Instantly, we're not so different. It's a progression of sanctification. How do we see victory in areas where we continue to fall back into patterns that are not in keeping with a holy life? Well, for you Spartan fans this morning, forgive me as I use a University of Michigan illustration, okay? I know the the wounds are very fresh, but just bear with me for a minute. I was intrigued last night watching the University of Michigan basketball game in that before the game, in a pregame show, they showed that Coach Beeline for the University of Michigan decided that this week, because they were going to be playing Syracuse, and Syracuse is known for its zone defense, they're very good at what they do, that they had to adapt to an entirely new way of playing offense. So Coach Beeline took his uh, Wolverine team and he put in front of them blockades. He caused them to have to step far back into the key, outside of the key, and he had individuals stand in front of his shooters, his offensive team, with high cones above their head, and they had to learn to shoot over the top of those cones. They had to take on a new strategy because their old strategy wouldn't work against Syracuse. It wouldn't have been effective. They wouldn't have been victors. 
So here, what I'm here to tell you this morning is that if, if you want to have victory in this particular area and not fall back and what you've been doing is not working for you, there's a new strategy for you and it's really not new. It's as old as the Bible itself, as a matter of fact. As a matter of fact, it is the Bible. The, the new old strategy is the Word of God and prayer. If you find yourself floundering Go to God's Word. If we desire to have our minds renewed, and Scripture says that's what's so important, that we have a new mind, a new thinking, find God's thoughts. Where are God's thoughts? Okay, there they are. If you want to think like God thinks, immerse yourself in His thinking and in your prayer life. That's how you put on this new mind, the renewal that Paul was speaking of. So I'm going to end in a very unusual way. I'm sure you don't see this coming, but I I just want to remind you this morning that God is never surprised and that living in the midst of the society that you live in and the generation that we find ourselves in in 2013, we may look around the United States and say, whoa, what is going on with my United States of America? Even if you only survey the last five years, you might find yourself asking that question. God is never surprised, and He proves it to us by writing something all the way back in the first century about our day and age. I want to show that to you from 2 Timothy 3.1. 2 Timothy 3 says this, But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, Boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now you may look at that and say, I'm thinking that's us. I'm thinking that's 2013. Maybe. Maybe God's going to kick the can down the road 500 more years. We don't know if these are the last days. But we do know this kind of represents the things that we see on the horizon. How much more important then for you to be a light in the midst of a wicked and perverse and dark generation? Because God said, if you live the way that I call you to live, you will be a shining light people will be drawn to my glory. So that's my prayer for you this morning. If you'll, if you'll pray with me, we're going to pray about that very issue. Would you join me in that? Father, I, I pray for us individually. Every single person here is special to you and remarkably loved by you. And so, Father, I ask for the individuals here that you help us to represent you well and to deal in our own life with the things that we continue to stumble over, that we might be called those who walk in righteousness. Father, drive us to Your Word and drive us to our knees. Help us to be dependent upon You instead of trying to do the old way. God, I also pray for our church corporately and for the church of Jesus Christ around the world that we would be bold on your behalf. And the things that we know to be true, that we would stand on them as a firm foundation. Help us, Father, not to quiver and shake 
even when society pushes back against us. Because we know that we know that we know that our Redeemer lives. Thank you, Father, for the truth that we've heard this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.